You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This will be your host, Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. Welcome back to your favorite consumable psychology podcast. All right, so we have a bit of a hot button issue to tackle today. At least it's it's been relevant for a long time and I think has become increasingly relevant and there's a lot to talk about in here, yeah? Yes, 100%. So the topic today, dyslexia, if you did not already catch it from the title. Right. <laughs> and it is jam-packed. I think we owe a quick hat tip to Kyle, who helped with these show notes immensely. <laughs> he, he just topped onto the team. And if anything, we said, here is one of the biggest topics we've ever tackled ever. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. So Kyle Sturry, uh, he spearheaded the notes for this one. As Ryan said, he recently joined the team as one of our researchers. And we did throw this at him with, I guess, a fairly short window of time in which to get it all done. So he, he had to tackle quite a large concept. So he did a great job on this. And I'm excited to share a lot of what he found and bring to it, of course, the the kind of discussion that we would bring to the, any kind of topic of this sort. So as I said, lots to unpack here. Yeah. So our goals today are to talk about the history of dyslexia, a little bit in this neurodiversity scope as well, what it is, how it's diagnosed and different treatments or different approaches or interventions to help people who may be experiencing dyslexia. All right. So let's start with a story. We'll dive into a little history here. So we have this fella named W. Pringle Morgan, and he was a British physician who, in 1896, wrote about a young man named Percy. And Percy, despite having seemingly normal intelligence, really struggled to read. He described Percy as a well-grown lad, 14 years old, and the second of seven children to two intelligent parents, and that he was bright, intelligent, quick at games, and not inferior to others his age. Despite seven years of intensive teaching and tutoring, Percy was only able to spell and read with great difficulty, one-syllable words at most. So Percy had what Morgan called an, quote, inability to read and attributed this phenomenon to a congenital defect. Now, Percy did know his letters. He was able to write them. He was able to label them. However, when tested, this W. Pringle Morgan, I always want to call him fella for some reason. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> He found these particular areas. For example, when he said the word song, Percy wrote scone, which is a little different. And to be fair, these are they're British, so it's possible the accent influenced how he heard and, and wrote what he heard. <laughs> Subject become skojock, without became witch out. English became Anglis, and seashore became seeso. And so we have this story of this individual who, despite having all other indicators of normal cognitive functioning, struggled with this one particular skill. So let's dive into a little bit of the history with respect to the development of the diagnosis of dyslexia out of our little story here. So there was a history of dyslexia outlined by Hallahan and Mercer in 2001 in a report presented to the Learning Disabilities Summit. And there's a few different chunks of time periods here that we're going to summarize. So the first one is the European foundation period of the 1800s to early 1900s. So there's a lot of folks in here that I'm going to do my best to attempt to try to state their names correctly. So first of all, Adolf Kussmaul identified the concept of, quote, word blindness or, quote, text blindness, which would eventually lead to the term reading disability and dyslexia in later years. Also during this 1800s and 1900s time period, John Hinshelwood and W. Pringle Morgan, that good old fella, identified word blindness as an inheritable trait. Yeah, so basically there was this trend over time in the psychological community where anytime there was a difficulty distinguishing something, they would add blindness to the end of it. And that ended up being applied to a variety of labels and has sort of slowly been changing to other labels that are a little bit more descriptive because blindness really doesn't quite capture what's going on here, which is why it later became reading disability and then dyslexia. Now, as you mentioned, that went up to the early 1900s. The next period in time is this U.S. foundation period, and this is from the 1920s to the 1960s. And this period is really 
marked by expansion of European work by several U.S. researchers that focused on reading disabilities as well as perceptual motor and attention deficits. And they sought specifically to understand the brain-behavior relationship and to try and use their understanding of that relationship to help children with learning disabilities. And one important name here that a lot of people who know someone with a dyslexia diagnosis, maybe has a child with dyslexia, or they themselves experience dyslexia, will recognize the name Samuel Orton. And Orton introduced descriptions and interventions for reading disabilities, including multisensory training, and this will later be coined the Orton-Gillingham method. And so oh, let's break that down just a little bit. So the Orton-Gillingham method seeks to incorporate both hemispheres of the brain, left and right, into teaching language and reading. The idea being that if one hemisphere is impaired, the other can help, quote, supplement the teaching. I think the important thing to understand when one talks about here how they target the hemispheres of the brain, and this is related to an episode we recently re released on right and left brain personality, is essentially what they're trying to do is say, if we present a skill in this particular way, that will force this particular hemisphere of the brain to be working versus if we present it in this way, that'll force the other hemisphere of the brain to be working and try and build strength across the two. So I, I believe that's the conceit of their hypothesis in terms of why they would talk about it this way. Thank you. And this method of teaching is still used today, but evidence for its effectiveness is still being disputed. Now, according to the Orton Academy website, a the approach is blended from a multi-sensory training, personalized direct instruction, which there's a lot more of this to come later, and a linguistics influence there as well. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how one would begin to diagnose this thing. So another figure here is named Samuel Kirk, and he developed the Illinois Test of Psycholinguistic Abilities, or the ITPA, for pinpointing specific learning disabilities in children, such as reading disabilities. And the ITPA was a psycholinguistic approach to teaching and specifically was used to assess areas such as spoken analogies, spoken vocabulary, rhyming sequences, written vocabulary, and sight and sound deletion, among others. And the intention or the purpose of this assessment was to inform treatments to improve those areas, which is really what any assessment should do, is inform the kind of treatment or intervention that should follow from that assessment. Yes, and many European researchers who had emigrated to the United States began recommending accommodations for children with learning disabilities, such as distraction-free environments and remedies to perceptual disturbances. And this discrepancy model was designed at this time. Comparison of students' IQ with academic performance was the basis for diagnosis, which is no longer used today. So now we move into the next sort of period of time with respect to the timeline of dyslexia and understanding it and providing interventions for it and that sort of thing. And this was the 1960s through 1975, about there. Okay. And during this period, four major things happened. The first was that this is where the term learning disabilities was introduced. The second thing is that learning disabilities was added to the agenda for the federal government with respect to um, things that might be required that they might say are required to be covered or provide interventions for or otherwise provide support for in their infrastructure. The third thing is that professionals and parents work together to found organizations for children with learning disabilities. And then the, the final major thing to talk about here is that there was a huge boom in programming and development of curriculum, specifically of educational materials for individuals with these learning disabilities that focused on what they called psychological processing and perceptual training. And all of this comes from the Hallahan and Mercer citation that we referenced earlier. Now, Samuel Kirk introduced the term learning disabilities. Funny because although he was vocal about his distaste for labels, he introduced one of the most commonly used label in education and one that actually we see a lot of kickback on if it's especially being used to define a characteristic of a person or who they are nowadays. Rightfully so. A lot of these labels have sort of come under scrutiny because they either fail to adequately describe or because they create an unnecessary label or there are a lot of reasons. But yeah, I think this is one that has started to receive some more 
scrutiny in terms of how useful it is and whether it needs to be changed or eliminated altogether. Now, major organizations were formed in response to increasing numbers of children with learning disabilities, such as dyslexia, including different organizations such as the Association for Children with Learning Disabilities, which is now currently the Learning Disabilities Association of America, and the Division for Children with Learning Disabilities of the Council for Exceptional Children. Didn't they put out a publication for a while, the Council for Exceptional Children? Yes, and there's still a very popular textbook um, that's labeled Exceptional Children that has been updated like 14, 15 times now or something crazy like that. Cool. So that might be a good resource for people too. Yeah. Now, task forces were developed during this time as well to formalize a definition of, quote, learning disability. Only partial agreement between committees on formal definitions actually occurred. We actually see this a lot in different areas of psychology because of the different influences, different branches, different perspectives. It's hard to get agreement on exactly what's going on. Absolutely. And going back to this idea of what the government sort of brought to this and at the federal level is the U.S. Office of Education specifically began to recommend strategies for education of individuals who have this label of having a learning disability. Now, important to note here that there were these techniques that they were supposed to be oriented toward improving visual and visual motor impairment. However, these were generally found to be ineffective at actually increasing or improving academic performance, even though those were things that were recommended. So that moves us into the solidification period, which is really around 1975 to 1985. During this time, laws were passed that made learning disabilities eligible for government funding. Interventions were designed to improve visual and visual motor skills with the hopes that these would alleviate symptoms to learning disabilities. However, results were disappointing at best. Also during this time, a gentleman named Siegfried Engelman. Along comes a hero. Yes developed what we call direct instruction, which was this conglomerate of different, I would say, instructional practices and strategies that were very well researched in the areas of language, reading, and mathematics on how to improve and teach these sort of skills. Large-scale studies demonstrated that direct instruction was actually really, really effective, and we're going to bring this back up later. All right, so now we get to move into what is described retrospectively, of course, as the turbulent period of 1985 to 2000. It's a nice 15-year period, and during this period, there were some increasing disagreements on the definition and the diagnostic criteria for this idea of learning disabilities. So it sort of had its heyday, and then people started to question and disagree on what it all meant, really. And to this day, this may surprise nobody or may come as a surprise to some or whatever. I think it's interesting. Dyslexia is the most studied, most known learning disorder in the world. But there is at most only a very general agreement on the definition of dyslexia and the diagnostic criteria used in both the clinical and research fields among clinicians, researchers, and advocacy groups. Okay, so there was this approach to the criteria that was this discrepancy approach, and this is a way of determining whether students qualify with a learning disability. However, there were people pointed out that there were some flaws. Uh, many researchers disagreed with this and continued to emphasize the the problems of this and so this is no longer widely used all right so now it's time to shift into features characteristics of dyslexia and then we'll get into symptoms and what the definition is that's commonly used in the diagnostic statistics manual in psychology so first features and characteristics of dyslexia today this falls under an umbrella term of specific learning disorder and this learning disorder is specifically a reading disorder, which occurs in children, but often continues into adulthood. And there's really this mixed consensus on causes. There currently is no cure. However, many effective interventions do exist for those that are seeking them. And of people with reading difficulties, 70 to 80% are likely to have been labeled with dyslexia at some point in their life. And estimations of the prevalence rates, which are just crazy when you start to think about it, are anywhere between 5 and 17% of people in the United States, which is It's a huge number. That's so many people. Yeah, I was watching this uh, video about how this didn't seem to necessarily... This is uh, words from uh, a TEDx talk given by someone with dyslexia that I'm, I'm paraphrasing, to be clear here. We'll make sure we link it. 
but he was talking about how, from his understanding, this didn't seem to be as big of an issue up until this whole industrial revolution, the printing press, and then our society largely just went so heavy on reading and these different forms of text and whatnot that it's it, it might have attributed, at least in his perspective, to why this seems like it was just an apparent thing that popped up relatively shortly in the human period of existence. That does make sense. And I always do appreciate when someone looks at the historical context of the factors that might influence what looks like a sudden change in human performance and human behavior is to look at, well, the opportunities now are very different. An interesting fact, I think, to consider in that context, however, is this idea that dyslexia is more prevalent in schools in high poverty levels than in influent areas. And that would imply that there's something more systematic than random distribution of dyslexia that might have at least something to do with levels of support and resources for teaching, as well as potentially a bias in the diagnostic application. I'm very curious to understand what could possibly be contributing to this. If this is based essentially on the idea that people are going to simply struggle with reading under certain conditions, then it doesn't make sense to say that you would have an unequal distribution of these things among specific levels of income, right? So that has to speak to something else, either with respect to how they're getting diagnosed or the kind of resources that are available to them at those different levels. And both of those things are really important in understanding and moving forward with how we begin to prescribe and understand something like dyslexia. So let's go ahead and dive into the symptoms, because I think one thing that's very commonly misunderstood among people who don't really know that much about dyslexia is that dyslexia is not simply reversing letters, numbers, and words. There is something different going on in terms of their ability to really have their understanding of what they're looking at consistently inform their response to that thing, is the way I like to put that. Now, that being said, generally speaking, the symptoms include things like difficulty with speed, accuracy, and decoding of words, as well as some difficulty in reading comprehension, and this should come as a surprise to no one, spelling difficulty. You do see an instance where they'll see reversal of letters and words, but you wouldn't know that they were doing that mentally, necessarily, although you will see sometimes if they were to see words that are or letters that are easily flipped, like a B and a D or a P and a Q, they might read those incorrectly. It's more apparent too when you see writing where they'll flip them as well. And so that's those are the only two real ways to know whether or not reversal is occurring. They often will demonstrate difficulty discriminating between left and right. There can be some fine motor impairment and coordination issues. And then often, well, not often, you might also see as a symptom of this, a failure to recognize patterns as easily as might be expected at their developmental level. All right. So that takes us into defining this according to that diagnostic and statistics manual. And in this, as we said, it's under specific learning disorder and a specific learning disorder, which is shortened by an LD for short comprises a heterogeneous group of disorders characterized by persistent difficulties with learning academic skills in a variety of domains, including reading, spelling, written expression, and mathematics. Now, we probably won't just say LD in the medical community. That means lethal dose. And so (laughs) we'll just keep calling it specific learning disability. Yes. (laughs) I don't know why they would short it to LD. I don't either, actually, especially, I don't know, it seems unnecessary. Let's go ahead and transition now to discussing how one would go about diagnosing dyslexia. So this will be a really good time for a quick ad break. Go for it. All right, cool. Okay, so we were just describing some of the symptoms and the definition of dyslexia, and now we're going to discuss some of the diagnostic criteria. All right. So as we said, it's diagnosed as a specific learning disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. To be clear here, there is no blood test. There is no brain scanning. None of those technologies can help diagnose and specifically say this is dyslexia or this is that specific learning disorder. Now, there's a whole lot of reading tests, assessments that are administered, and there are so many of them. I'll let you start tackling these, Abraham. Okay. So, ready. 
and go. There's the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children, third edition, or the WISC3, also called the WISC. There's the Kaufman Assessment Battery for Children, also called the KABC. They really like acronyms. There's the Stanford Binet Intelligence Test, which we've talked about before and most people have heard about. And finally, the Woodcock Johnson Psychoeducational Battery. Now, there's also the Peabody Individual Achievement Test Revise, P-I-A-T is the acronym. The Weschler Individual Achievement Tests, the W-I-A-T, the Kaufman Tests of Educational Achievement, K-T-E-A, and Bender Gestalt Test of Visual Motor Perception. All right, perfect. Then we have the Beery Developmental Test of Visual Motor Integration, the Motor-Free Visual Perception Test, Visual Oral Digital Span Test, or the V-A-D-S, which I'm sure they call the VADS, and finally, the Test of Auditory Perception, or TAPS. And then there's finally still a few more. The Test of Visual Perception TVPS, the Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test Revised, the Expressive One Word Picture Vocabulary Test, and the Test for Auditory Comprehension of Language. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, scores of these tests gauge performance in oral language, reading, spelling, and writing. And typically, scores are norm referenced. Can you maybe describe what norm referencing is real quick? Yeah, so essentially what they'll do is they're going to sample the performance of a huge number of people, usually a few thousand. I often see around anywhere from seven to 11,000 kids, and they'll segment them based on their grade and or age or both. And what they'll do is they'll create a bell curve on performance. And then what happens is where someone performs, they will compare that score to the bell curve. And so say, for example... I'm just going to use reading as an example. If you had a whole bunch of people in a, what you might call quote unquote normal distribution, and then 150 words per minute is about where the majority of people were reading, then the middle of the bell curve would be at about 150 words per minute, which meant that if you read at about 150 words per minute, then you would be exactly in the middle of the reading speed of everybody around you. That some people About 50% of people would read slower than you. About 50% of people would read faster than you. Whereas if you read at the 90th percentile of that distribution in that norm reference group, that would mean that 90% of people read slower than you and only 10% of people read faster than you. Does that make sense? Yes, perfect. Thank you. And so what happens is these scores are norm referenced in that process, and they're tested against comparative scores from people that are similar aged or similar grades as Abraham was discussing. Now, clinicians identify whether children are unable to perform academically compared to the age or intelligent level groups of other children. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the definition of dyslexia no longer includes this idea of discrepancy. And what discrepancy means here is that there is the assumption that there is a high degree of difference between a children's IQ score and their reading ability. And as described earlier, that just wasn't the case. You'd saw kids who were very intelligent that they could learn and they could perform and they would do just fine. It was just this one particular type of skill that they struggled with. And so that model of just saying that, well, if they can't read well, then they must not be very intelligent, wasn't very informative. And so that is no longer really being used. And in fact, some evidence suggests that some children are good readers and might otherwise actually have a low IQ. So you might have the reverse of that, where strong reading does not necessarily indicate that they would do well on other intellectual or cognitive tasks. So that whole idea of that discrepancy model just doesn't, it just didn't make sense anymore. And those are the reasons why. All right. So now we want to shift into the relevant information and this kind of loose topic of what causes this. So first, research in neurology. Okay. Well, as we described, this is tricky for a lot of reasons. First of all, we're essentially looking at a performance measure and then inferring that the cause of that performance is linked to something that is shared among everybody else who has a similar pattern in their performance when there might be a lot of reasons. So there's actually no evidence of an obvious neurological condition and the majority of research with word reading difficulty, which is to say that we can't necessarily point to a part of the brain and say that that is the reason that they're struggling with decoding or reading these words. Now, that being said, a lot of neuroimaging studies are often cited as evidence of, or that they imply causation of dyslexia. However, people who behave differently, which is to say that they don't read well, or they do read well, will have different looking brains simply by virtue of the fact that they are doing something different. 
Neuroimaging only documents something that is happening, but it does not point actually to the cause. Again, we've talked at length in this podcast about the understanding of the brain and the fact that the brain is implicated in everything that we do, and it's also part of its experience, learning, shaping, and general pressures from the environment to do well or not do well. Okay, And so some authors do take issue with calling dyslexia a brain abnormality because of difficulty really pinpointing what the relationship is and also even pinpointing necessarily regions in the brain that would be definitively responsible for this. And this is a perfect segue into the topic and discussion around neurodiversity. Now, neurodiversity is the idea that because our brains show differences in structure, form, function, that we shouldn't be quick to label people that deviate from this norm as a pathological disorder or dismiss people as defective. Going back to the idea of why labels are a bad idea is because they get in the way of potentially better understanding and better treating and diagnosing things like this. I think that there was in that one council that we've described of exceptional children, a way of describing like that. That's an old council. Like they've been around for decades now and they came at this from the approach of, we're not calling them broken. We're not calling them disabled. We're not even calling them abnormal. We're just going to call them exceptional because we are going to take this optimistic view of this. Right. And so I think there has been a long history of people advocating for approaching this in such a way that we don't, talk about this pathologically. We simply say, this is where the performance is at right now. And if it's in your best interest, if you'd like to pursue this, we'd like to help you do better on these skills that will help you in other areas of your life. 100% very well stated. There's this pressure, it seems like from psychology, psychological disorders being pushed into the medical community and that, you know, diagnose, treat sort of model that brought some of this language in and I don't think it's always the best and it's been discussed actually extensively as we were talking about before we hit record on this in different areas of psychology including behavior analysis as the, the, these things don't help when we just start labeling things <laughs> like we need to figure out how we can help the person if they want the help so that then moves us into this idea around what causes this so this essentially comes from the University of Michigan Dyslexia Help Program. And so we're going to be either paraphrasing or quoting directly what they have said about the types of causes of dyslexia. And they start with saying that there's two types of dyslexia, acquired and developmental. Now, acquired dyslexia can be caused by ear infections early in childhood that result in hearing problems. Developmental dyslexia is caused by congenital and developmental factors. And scientists believe that dyslexia has a genetic component that may predispose some people for dyslexia. Now, although the specific causes have not been fully investigated, neurological abnormalities are introduced in the brain, as we discussed, which can make it difficult for the dyslexic to read and understand information. And as we said, majority of this is linked directly in the show notes from the University of Michigan Dyslexia Help Program. Now, I think generally on this show, we've been pretty good about using what is commonly referred to as person-first language, which is to say that rather than start with describing someone as the diagnosis or the label that's been applied to them, we describe them as a human being first. So I kind of have a little bit of a reaction when I see someone described as a dyslexic, and someone might also have that reaction. So I just like to point out that a more PC way of saying that would be a person with dyslexia and not a dyslexic person. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Thank you. Yeah, no. And that was that was from that source. So it wasn't even that you said it incorrectly. I actually think that generally we do a really good job of keeping that really clear. But let's actually transition now to one of, I think, the most fascinating pieces of education history that we could ever talk about. We have reached out to and are planning an episode in the future on an expert on this topic. And this is something called Project Follow Through. I'll let you go ahead and segue into this because you have a lot of really cool information on this, right? Yeah, I've studied this quite a bit. Project Follow Through was and still is the largest and most expensive experimental project in education that's been funded by the U.S. government and conducted ever. It covered the years roughly of 1968 through 77. However, the program still received funding all the way up until 1995. And it was during President Lyndon B. Johnson's 1967 State of the Union address where he proposed $120 million for the program 
to try to save approximately 200,000 children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Congress only actually approved and authorized $15 million at that point in time. And across that entire 1968 until 1995, there's been a number of sources say that it's somewhere around upwards of a billion dollars of today's modern cash with a B, one billion, that has been put in to try and understand essentially just how do children learn and what are the best programs out there to teach children how to learn? Now, to the Jeff Bezos of the world, that doesn't sound like very much because he just carries $1 billion in his socks, you know, for a rainy day. But for most of us, that's a pretty unseemly amount of money. I did want to ask, because I think you remember this better than I do, but wasn't this initially started because there was already some kind of government-sponsored plan to try and facilitate kids getting all the way through their education system and out into the workforce, and it was just failing miserably. Is that correct? Yeah. So that program was called Head Start, which was developed as a result of the Economic Opportunity Act, which started in 1964 and just was completely failing miserably, meant to help these people in these learning disadvantaged groups. And again, I'll have you jump in if I'm wrong here, but my understanding was essentially this was an open invitation for people who had a curriculum that was designed to facilitate academic gains, could apply for this grant, and then execute on their curriculum, and then would have to submit their data back to the Board of People to say, this is how well our program performed with respect to these specific outcome measures. And there was a whole bunch of them. There's like 15 maybe different outcomes they were looking for. Yeah, I think there was approximately 15 different people that applied for the grant. Okay. And they had a whole bunch of measures too. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of measures. With respect to those 15, I mentioned that because there was one in particular that was part of that that really stood out. And this was called the direct instruction method. Another one we'll talk about is precision teaching, which actually often confused for a lot of people isn't a teaching method. It's actually a measurement method that uses direct instruction curriculum frequently to do academic instruction. And that these two here were really found to be highly effective compared to other educational approaches in helping children who were falling behind their peers academically and even excelling children who were just doing fine, but they were able to go even further than would have been expected otherwise. Yeah. So I found a few more of these. So on top of direct instruction, this precision teaching approach, there's the parent education model, Southwest lab model, Bank Street model, responsive education model, TEAM, T-E-E-M, I don't know what that stands short for, cognitive curriculum and open education. And what they were doing is they were assessing at how well these different models were in teaching reading, math, spelling, and language skills. Now, there's a pretty famous percentile scores graph that circulates around the internet, and there's only two models that actually showed significant gains in every single one of those areas of reading, math, spelling, and language. And that was, drum roll please, direct instruction and the precision teaching model. Now, the rest of them, although some of them did produce some gains, they also saw negative gains in these areas. Two of them, Southwest Lab and Open Education, were actually, across all four measures, going in the negative percentile scores. <laughs> it's been a while since I reviewed this, but as I recall, there was one that was oriented specifically toward building self-esteem. Again, I might be making this up a little bit. We'll have to ask Dr. Watkins when we eventually do that episode. Spoiler alert, that's the person I was talking about. <laughs> but anyway, if, as I recall, there was this one that their hypothesis was if you build a child's self-esteem, then their academic will correspondingly improve. And that was their whole curriculum was building self-esteem. And I also, as I recall, one of the measures that they looked at was children's self-esteem. So not only how they performed on reading and math, but also how they sort of felt about their performance on those things and if they had high self-esteem. And what had happened was not only did that self-esteem model fail to produce any academic gains whatsoever, but they also took a tremendous hit that they actually had a negative impact on the children's self-esteem. So, In addition to academic, they also looked at cognitive and affective measures as well. And you're 100% correct there. Now, I guess to just hat tip a little bit and make sure we're really clear on all of this, when you look at that graph, direct instruction was the only one that actually produced positive gains in academic, cognitive, and effective. Whereas the behavior analysis, precision teaching model that was there was not producing significant improvements. It was actually in the negative in the cognitive domain. And we can get into these reasons for a little bit later. But like, let's describe a couple of these models a little more specifically. So you want to take these? 
precision teaching and direct instruction? Yeah, I did want to say really quick that I just wanted to ask for clarification. Again, we've, we got a little bit sidetracked on this because we both are really interested in this subject, but mm-hmm. they did do this experiment more than once, right? Yeah. So the experiment was set up to where there was a bunch of counterbalances between who was implementing it, what school districts it was being implemented at, what you know the SES status was, things like that. And it was to the point where I can't even convey it in a podcast. Like There was so much data and so many different individual data points going out there. They actually had to hire numerous different research teams to analyze that data. And to kind of condense that, when they saw the preliminary results of how a lot of these programs weren't effective in what they were trying to aim to do, there's third-party researchers that were brought in that were hopefully didn't have any biases was the idea there to look at this as well. And they were finding similar things. But we re-looked at these data as a society numerous different times, all the way up until the mid-90s. And was it consistent that direct instruction did fairly well in those results? It was. And largely what happened was we decided as a society to put money into the things that weren't working to try to make them work as good as the things that were showing to be effective in the first place, yeah. rather than changing our model and using what was showing to work, which is really the disdain of a lot of the people that were really involved in this. Their hearts were broke, right? Like we figured out an effective way to move forward and we did not invest in it as a society. Yeah. The question I get most commonly when I talk about this is like, so why didn't we do it? And I'm like, well, the powers that be, man. (laughs) My understanding was unfortunately a little bit of capitalism and the different political agendas. And this isn't pointing at one particular, like when we're talking about this spanned over, I don't know how many presidents at that time, probably four or five, six different presidents were in office during this time period, right? Okay. So in essence, both the persistent teaching and direct instruction and of course the behavior analytic model rely on behavior analysis principles in their approach, which has to do with the stimuli or the essentially the curriculum that are presented, the response, which is what the child is doing, and then this use of positive reinforcement with teaching methods that also include things like prompting, how you would fade those prompts systematically, and the measurement portion. I do want to clarify here that I think that a lot of direct instruction teachers and people who are involved in the direct instruction approach would not say that they were informed in any way by behavior analysis. Yet what was described in the behavior analytic community is that even though they didn't come from the same sort of theoretical framework, they actually incorporated pretty much the exact same overlaying principles and practices that were part of that theoretical framework. And Siegfried Engelman was actually really good at figuring out what worked and how to package it in a way to where you didn't have to learn about the jargon or the whys. It was just packaged into Here's what you implement to be able to teach this skill. He's a brilliant, awesome human. Yeah, just fantastic approach. Whereas a lot of modern behavior analysis is trying to always kind of show, I would say, or highlight or point out where the behavior analysis is. He was really good at kind of secretly hiding that behind there just because he was trying to seek these outcomes of children learning skills that they wanted to learn. Yeah, awesome hero of the world. Yeah. In my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unreal. Um, I'll link just for fun. If anyone wants to see a video that's on his website, he passed recently in the last couple of years, but there's a 1968 video, I believe of him teaching low economic inner city children, algebra in kindergarten. And they're absolutely loving it. And it was just because he understood component skills, how to build up those skills and make it fun during his teaching process. Yes. And yeah, we'll do a more a deep dive on him and on direct instruction and on project follow through um, and future topics because those are things that are near and dear to my heart and also near and dear to Ryan as well, as I understand. So very, very cool. I love reading about all this stuff and I hope that it's as interesting to everybody else because <laughs> I've got I've got the burning passion. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> we both do, man. It's cool to see stuff that works so well. Yeah. All right, let's talk about persistent teaching really quick. For most people that have heard us talk about this before or who are in the behavior analysis community, they've heard the name Ogden Lindsley. He really was the one of the major founders in the development of precision teaching, which had primarily to do with the development of the standard behavior chart or the standard acceleration chart. And he really performed this under the edict of quote unquote the child knows best, which is actually sort of developed out of BF Skinner's approach that the organism knows best or the rat knows best is how it was sometimes said. I actually don't know that Skinner ever said those words specifically, but the idea in this 
is that the child is not to blame for slow or stalled progress, but the environment or the conditions that led up to the development of those skills are what got there. And so essentially what they're all saying as part of this is that anything that a child or an animal or any organism does, they do because that is what makes the most sense for them given what they know and the circumstances that they're in. And that's why they know best is because they are doing exactly what they were set up to do. And the second part of this precision teaching thing is this concept of fluency. We have two episodes on those that I highly recommend you go listen to them. They're both really awesome. One of our actually more frequently downloaded episodes is the interview that I did and the second part of that with Dr. Donnie Newsom. And fluency is not merely accuracy as getting to a percent correct as used as a primary decision-making factor, but also it is the idea of mastery that includes other measures such as the rate per minute of the response. And I think what's useful to understand about this is that the, the point of fluency is not necessarily go as fast as possible under all circumstances, but the conditions under which if pressure was put to do well, to go fast, to perform highly, can you do that? Not necessarily do you have to all the time, but could you if you needed to? Because that's part of what makes masterful performance is that you can perform under those sort of circumstances of pressure. All right. So direct instruction, that model, it has an emphasis on general case strategy, teaching the least amount of examples that produce the greatest amount of generalized learning. So for example, teaching only 40 different blended sound combinations, students can generalize sounding of words to over half of the English language. To just fascinating, right? Yeah. This also has some overlap philosophically with the work of John Dewey. So people who are interested in reading up more about this, that's another source to look at. And that's really what that Zig Engelman was so good at, was putting in the time care that was needed to research and identify how do we get the most bang for our buck when it comes to teaching. Absolutely. Now, both approaches have shown the most improvement in both academic achievement and self-esteem in students including the area of low social economic standing where learning disorders are most diagnosed. And despite the results of both precision teaching and direct instruction, they are not typically used in schools or variations are used without proper implementation. So they weren't taken up into the institutions or educational institutions that teach and train educators in the United States, largely worldwide. It's not seen outside the U.S. as well. And most educators are just not aware of these methods. This is one of the most heartbreaking, I guess, sad parts of it, especially when you, when you talk with some people like Kathy Watkins that you mentioned and others on how it just kind of fizzled out. It died. It was lost as a research study and, I don't know, for information for podcasters to kind of talk about and reminisce on, right? Well, it reached a simmer because it's like it never really went away. It just never got widely adopted. So there are a bunch of people who still use it. But yeah, you're absolutely right that this is an education thing in terms of teaching the teachers because most people have never heard of any of this. And this will be news even to some people who listen to this who are pretty smart and well-informed people for the most part. So if there are people who know about this, essentially their reluctance to adopt it is either that they don't know how or it's impractical. And then you also get people who are opposed to it for philosophical and political reasons as well, that those are out there. Now, I do want to take this back to dyslexia because we got on this train of the teaching strategies. And the reason that that's so critically important is because there is now plenty of research to show that with structured, intensive intervention you can really help those people who struggle with reading and decoding and math is, is another one that has started to show up in a big way for dyslexia by having really specific structured practice. A word you'll hear a lot is multimodal, which is to say that you'll have auditory components, visual components, where it makes sense, kinesthetic components. There is just a lot of approaching it in in various formats to work on that applied version of this and that there is hope here that people who have a dyslexia diagnosis, this is not a sentencing for your life. At least it doesn't have to be, right? That where it has been applied, there are people for whom they may not ever experience a fully fluent performance on reading or math or whatever the particular topic is they struggle with, but they're almost always going to improve with the right amount and the right kind of intervention that is available. And so seeking out empirically validated best practices for intervention for individuals who struggle with this 
is the best recommendation we can give because there's no cure, because there's even no real systematic diagnosis. It almost it just doesn't even really matter necessarily if you're struggling, then the best thing you can do is and or do for the person for whom you're providing the support is to reach out and find those resources. And in an ideal world, you wouldn't have to reach out and find those things and do it on your own because those would just simply be part of the curriculum is identifying those people who struggle with these skills and providing them the opportunity to get the structured practice they need to succeed. And unfortunately, we just don't have those systems in place right now. And I mean, we as in mostly a country and as a species, not us in the podcast, we have zero control over the (laughs) the academic landscape. Otherwise, things would look differently. That being said, essentially what we're advocating here for is we we feel for these people who struggle. And you had asked me earlier about people that I work with who have this diagnosis. And and I've worked with many, dozens, possibly more. And my experience of them is as individual and unique as the kids themselves, which is to say that everybody experiences this a little bit differently. And it's because of all those things that we've talked about that, yes, you're going to have some neurological conditions that might be a cause here. And we've also seen kids for whom they just never really got good structured teaching. And so when you give them an opportunity to just have really specific structured practice, they excel tremendously and very quickly. And then there are those for whom it just takes a really long time where you just have to take really small steps. And I have never seen someone fail to improve at least somewhat, regardless of this diagnosis. And honestly, we often take the approach of being what we call diagnosis agnostic, which is to say that if they come in with a diagnosis, we're not going to treat them as if they are broken or anything like that, that we're going to provide them as best an opportunity to succeed as we possibly can regardless of what labels they might have attached to them. And so uh, my experience has been like, yes, it can be really, really difficult for these kids that you just, I'm going to say this in a way that makes the most sense. A normal structured curriculum that's just sort of a package deal you can give to a student who wouldn't struggle with dyslexia or anything like that, and they'll accelerate no problem. You give that same curriculum to a student who does have that experience of difficulty reading and decoding, and they either don't excel at all or they excel at very tiny pace. And for those kids, we found, again, all you do is just break it down to smaller steps and you just move them in smaller increments and then they can excel. And because they're in smaller steps, it necessitates going at a slower pace, but nevertheless, they excel. And so I think a very optimistic way of approaching this is just like, let's provide the structured environment that you need And the most critical piece of this that I think almost irrespective of the curriculum that you use, although there is good curriculum and I'd recommend that you use it, is to use data to make those decisions. You just you can't help a kid move forward if you're not taking data on their performance and using measurement. And I would recommend standardized measurement specifically and a standard measurement chart specifically (laughs) if I can can do that. The best thing that you can do is make decisions based on data. If you're not using data, then you're shooting in the dark and there's you're, you're just much less likely to help that, that child succeed. So that's my recommendation there. All right. I think that's well stated. Anything else we need to cover for take-home points? No, I actually think that it sort of wrap up the bulk of it. I mean, I think we'll just hit the point really quick that there are various symptoms. There is no clear diagnostic criteria, but there are a ton of reading tests that are applied as a diagnostic criteria. The consensus on how much this is related to specific brain disorders is extremely weak, which is to say that not that it's not, but that the consensus is weak, that like people just don't necessarily agree on how or, or why that works. Yeah. And that I want to always leave people with a message of hope where possible that this is something where things can be done if you can get the support for it. And I don't want to put that responsibility necessarily on parents or teachers. Just know that like. I would, li- I would love for people to leave this episode feeling empowered to seek out those resources and seek help because when applied well, people can succeed in this model if that's in line with what, they're, what would help them have the best possible life for themselves. We're done. It's beautiful. Sweet. All right. Quick recommendations. Recommendations. So we talked a bit about Siegfried Engelman and I think that 
that got me thinking about a recommendation. I was going to recommend something else, but I decided my recommendation will actually be two books by Siegfried Engelman specifically. One is The Theory of Instruction. This is a dense read. It is packed with information. It is also essentially the conceptual framework upon which direct instruction is largely informed. And it is very fascinating. So if you're in teaching, especially if you are in academia and you are interested in researching teaching, you probably already heard about this or you probably already have an agenda, but really cool book. I'd highly recommend it. The other one is got a provocative title, which is Teaching Needy Kids in Our Backwards System. And this one does a good job of also talking more about the systemic problems of, of education and academia and also by Siegfried Engelman and highlights some sort of prescriptions for how to improve situation for children who especially are more likely to be faced with a lack of opportunity because of socioeconomic status and that sort of thing. All right. And my recommendation is actually this YouTuber named Johnny Harris makes some fantastic, cool videos. I believe he works for Vox and just kind of travels the world and has really cool, interesting things to say that are always 10 to 15 minutes from tourism to why Holland has bikes, cheese, tulips, and canals. So if you're interested in why why we do weird things and what's going on, he's kind of a cool figure I've been following recently that's been teaching me some cool things about culture. Rad. All right. With that said, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.